The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along to you all. This is a Mark Stein Clubland Q&A for members of the Mark Stein Club, for people around the world. I am, if you haven't been able to tell, not Mark Stein. I am the even less documented substitute guest guest host, Andrew Lawton, in for Mark today. And I thank you very much for tuning in. I've been waiting for years to do what I'm about to do right now because it is 5.01 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is Friday morning at 10.01 a.m. on Baker Island. It is Friday afternoon at 1.01 in Juneau and Fairbanks in Anchorage, Alaska. Skipping right ahead to Dublin, where it's Friday evening at 10 p.m. Oh, where else do we have? In the Maldives, Saturday morning at 3.01 a.m. So if you got up early just for this, I do hope you enjoy it. 3.32 a.m. in New Delhi, with you uh, crazy folks with the extra half-hour time zone there. Although, it gets even better if you skip ahead all the way to the Chatham Islands, where right now it is Saturday morning at 11.47 a.m. So welcome, whether you're in Baker Island, the Chatham Islands, London, Ontario, London, Kiribati, or London, Kentucky, or even London, England. Thank you very much. It is actually, this is my first time doing a Clubland Q&A. I've had the great privilege of guest hosting the Mark Stein Show on a couple of occasions. And I was mentioned, I believe it was two fortnights ago today, four weeks ago exactly at this time, when I had dealt with a dose of the pepper spray from Her Majesty's Constabulary in Ottawa, Ontario. Now, I don't even know to this day, I'm still trying to figure out which police force it was that gave me the pepper spray because they had police from all over Canada there. They were Ottawa police and the Mounties and Toronto police and police from my own city and the uh, Surete du Quebec from across the Ottawa River. And all of them, if you've seen the footage, were not wearing anything identifying who they were, where they were from. They were just masked up in the riot gear with the pepper spray, which I had the misfortune of taking a significant dose of. Literally, I think it was about uh, just maybe an hour, four, four weeks and one hour ago. And then the next day, I was back at it trying to cover things and got a second dose of the pepper spray from the, from the peelers, as Mark said. And what I found fascinating about it was that it didn't get me as much the second time. So I still to this day don't know if there was just less pepper spray that got in the next day or if I had developed natural immunity between the first dose of the pepper spray and the second dose. I, I don't want my booster. <laughs> I can tell you that much. I'm not lining up for the booster. I'm not lining up for the pepper spray passport whenever you need that to get into a restaurant in Ottawa. I'm not doing that. Although, interestingly, I did kind of re-pepper spray myself uh, the next... Actually, it was a couple days later because I, I kind of just didn't really think too much of the constitution of pepper spray. And I ended up making the mistake of wiping my face with the toque that I was wearing, which is, if you can't tell that I'm Canadian, I just use the word toque in conversation. And the toque had a bit of the pepper spray. And so that one, I can't blame, I can't blame the Ottawa police for the, uh, for the, the toque incident. But nevertheless, I am pepper spray here. I am here doing the Clubland Q&A. And it is my great privilege to be here. This is uh, completely compliant with the requirements in Canada for Canadian content. So if you are tuning in from Canada, don't worry. This is going to check off the CanCon box, so you don't need to listen to any Justin Bieber or Celine Dion. You may if you'd like, but 
You don't have to. That's the point. And we are also going to get to all of your questions about whatever you'd like. I have not seen the questions. I don't know what you're going to ask. You can ask me anything. I will do my best to uh, get to all of your answers. And if I don't answer to your satisfaction, I'm sure Mark Stein, when he is back on the air, can pick it up and (laughs) take it from there. I I do want to, just before we get into your questions, play this one clip that I found uh, quite fascinating. Because if you were following the Trucker Convoy coverage, whether it was on Stein Online or on Mark's show on GB News or, or Colin Brazier on GB News, on whose show I appeared uh, several times to give updates about the Trucker Convoy, you'll no doubt be aware that it was really Trudeau versus the truckers. It was Justin Trudeau who had decided before the convoy even arrived in Ottawa, this was a fringe minority, he said, those were his exact quotes, with unacceptable views. And it it just kept doubling and tripling down. Then it became, oh, they're just a bunch of Nazis and racists and white supremacists. And when a Jewish member of parliament, Melissa, Melissa Lanceman, stood up and accused Justin Trudeau of maligning these people, he said to her, well, you just uh, stand with people with swastikas. Uh, This is a woman whose ancestors come from Odessa, Jewish refugees, Holocaust survivors, and to Trudeau. It doesn't matter. This is what the new era has brought to us. You don't even need to be a Nazi to be a Nazi. You can be a Jewish descendant of Holocaust survivors, and you are a Nazi. It's amazing how this works out. But that same Justin Trudeau that was refusing to meet with the truckers, calling them all racist, that was uh, bringing in the police and invoking the Emergencies Act to go and, and bash in their heads in front of Parliament Hill, said this in Germany just a couple of days ago. The respect for the infinite dignity of each individual means no one should get left out. And this is also true for people who hold different political views. We all need to commit to more listening and less shouting. Diversity of ideas helps us learn from one another. Talking with people who think differently from us is how we challenge ourselves. And challenging ourselves is how we grow. So by strengthening our open, inclusive societies, everyone benefits democracy benefits that is what happens when your socks are on too tight i think so so just a few weeks after his authoritarian crackdown and malignment of anyone he disagreed with his belief that they didn't have a right to protest now all of a sudden it's well you know as, as democracies we we all learn from hearing from people we disagree with and respecting others and i have to i mean i don't have a lot of time for justin trudeau But I have to give him credit for delivering the line in perfect deadpan without breaking a smile. He did it with a straight face, which uh, takes takes, uh, some level of uh, courage. I don't know if courage is the right word. Uh, Indifference. Either way, we will, I'm sure, field some of your questions on Justin Trudeau and Vladimir Putin and uh, Zelensky and Joe Biden and anyone else about whom you would like to ask here. The first question, my first Clubland Q&A question ever, comes from Elisa, who says that the Canadian Emergency Act was so easily invoked against illegal parking truckers and their supporters in what appears to be a violation of the Canadian Constitution. Are the Conservatives, or is anyone, taking steps to put the kibosh on aspects of it to prevent future misuse of the Act and abuse of Canadians? So just for those who don't know, the Emergencies Act, as it's called now, is the successor to the War Measures Act, which had only been invoked three times in Canadian history, once in World War I, once in World War II, and once during the FLQ crisis, which was a a French separatist nationalist uh, terrorist group, the FLQ in in Quebec back uh, a couple of decades. And even then, I mean, there was a lot of controversy about the War Measures Act being invoked by Pierre Trudeau at that time, but at least there had been violence. (laughs) There had been the threat of violence. It was not, uh, but contrary to what some history books may say, the FLQ crisis was not about a bunch of angry Frenchmen in hot tubs and saunas with bouncy castles. That was a, a level of emergency we didn't see in Canada until 2022. So the Emergencies Act, quote-unquote, was supposed to take out the violation of civil liberties from the War Measures Act by putting in a line that says, well, all of the things we're going to do are subject to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. 
And I will be fully candid with you here. I used to be one of these uh, people, as Mark would say, who waves the Constitution in the air. And then at a certain point, you realize that these things aren't worth the paper they're written on if uh, politicians and in Canada courts are not prepared to respect them. So by the time the court will get around to saying, ah, you know what, yes, this violated, uh, you know, sections 2B of the Charter and section 15 of the Charter and section 8 of the Charter, uh, by that point, the damage is done. And the next time they want to do it as well, the same thing will happen. They'll do it, and by the time they do it and the damage is done, a court might get around to it and might decide the correct way on it, but ultimately it's not going to happen. So the Emergencies Act, Justin Trudeau did something quite interesting with it because Parliament needs to vote to affirm the emergency. They basically need to say, yes, we agree. And Justin Trudeau had the support of the New Democratic Party. This is the, the Bernie Stan AOC party of Canada, certainly in its current iteration. And they backed it because Justin Trudeau said, well, uh, if uh, this doesn't go, then my government is going to fall. And if that happens, then we have an election. And the NDP is just like perpetually destitute as a party and can't afford elections. So their meal ticket involves Justin Trudeau being in power and throwing them the odd bone. The odd bit of, well, it's not red meat, I guess the odd, the odd bit of uh, tofu or something, but whatever the case is, that's their whole MO, is backing Trudeau, supporting Trudeau. So Parliament passed this, the Senate might have voted against it, but Justin Trudeau decided before then to revoke the emergency. And for the politicians, there's going to be some multi-partisan commission that'll look into it and file a report, but really it won't make a difference. There are a number of court challenges. A couple of the civil liberties groups have said that they are taking the government to court. They filed actions. There's a very real fear that the government will say, well, it's moot. There's no point in us looking at this now because the emergency's over. And next time a government wants to do this, it's back to square one. So I don't think there's anything about what has happened and what will happen that will prevent future misuse, as Elisa says in the question. I think quite the contrary. What Justin Trudeau has done here is popped the cork and, and licensed governments to use this, not to quell emergencies, not to respond to war, but to use it as a political cudgel when it looks very bad on your government that a bunch of people are calling you out for suspending your respect for liberties, if you ever even had it. And they've said that now constitutes an emergency a personal political emergency is to Justin Trudeau a national emergency. And if you have someone unscrupulous in office, there's no reason that won't happen uh, many times over. Sharon writes, could you please update us on the status of the truckers in Canada? What is happening with Tamara Leach and the others who were jailed? Is there any talk on when the restrictions on the truckers will lift it? We have a few Canadian questions today. If you're a Canuckophobe, rest assured we will get to some non-Canadian content. But uh, I, I, I wrap myself in the maple leaf today. I'm okay with it. <laughs> uh, but that's a great question, Sharon. So Tamara Leach, was she's I think she's like five I think she's like five two or five three or something she's not a not that her height matters but she's a very tiny non-threatening woman she's Métis which is a, uh, a blend of, of French heritage and indigenous heritage going back uh, centuries to uh, basically the the 1700s in, in Canada and then you have also the fact that she's just a grandmother from rural Alberta who decided that she supports the truckers. She launched the GoFundMe page, which was later uh, taken down and was supporting this whole thing. She was the organizer. She was the fundraiser. And she has become a political prisoner in Canada. She was arrested on a charge of counseling mischiefs. <laughs> she wasn't a, a arrested for being mischievous. She was arrested for counseling others to be mischievous, thrown in jail and kept there for about two and a half weeks before she was released. I think it was on Tuesday. And what was fascinating about this, it might have been Monday, but what was fascinating about this is that even as the emergency, the so-called emergency ceased to exist, she was still behind bars. Even as the bank accounts were frozen and the fundraising campaigns were frozen, she was still behind bars. She's not vaccinated, so she can't get on a plane and she can't drive to the U.S., so she's not a flight risk. But they wanted to throw the book at her. Again, they want to quell dissent. That's the entire role of the government here in its response to the trucker convoy. And now that she's out, the money that was donated, because they, they used the Emergencies Act to freeze people's bank accounts. 
so that they could go and say, <laughs> you know, Gladys, uh, Gladys, uh, you know, Phillips or whatever, you can, uh, well, you know what, you don't get to bank anymore because you donated $20 to the truckers. And they've said, well, no, we didn't do that. We were only after organizers. But there are people who I, I heard from one person, and it is verified, they and their wife own a, a little uh, shipping company, a, a local shipping company not far from me. And one of their trucks, with their knowledge, with their consent, was in Ottawa participating in the convoy. And the wife of the owner had her bank account frozen. The wife of the owner of the company, who had nothing to do with the protest, she had her bank account frozen because they thought, well, if uh, you know, you're know you six degrees of separation away from someone who supports those truckers, uh, you don't get to buy groceries. Not that anyone can afford to buy groceries in, in North America now, but this has been the approach. It's entirely punitive, nothing to do with an actual emergency of any kind. And the money is still in, in limbo because even with the uh, emergency lifted, all of the money that was raised has been banned from going into Canadian bank accounts. There's a, a court order that has frozen it. So give, send, go, which uh, you may have seen the CEO interviewed by Mark a few weeks ago on GB News. Give, send, go was trying to be cooperative here. They're in the U.S. They don't see the Canadian authorities as having any jurisdiction over their operations. But the Canadian government has basically made it illegal for Give, Send, Go to put that money across the border where all the truckers who had fuel and food and lodging costs need it. And they said in a statement the other day, it was quite fascinating, that the Canadian authorities are trying to get access to it in the U.S. So they've said that the only thing they think they can do to prevent the government from getting its grubby hands on this is to refund the donations. So the, I think it was like 10 million U.S. dollars that was donated is now being refunded. Again, not going to truckers, not going to the people it was there to support, because it would be illegal to do that. And I know lots of people have talked about, oh, well, you know, get them cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. or At the time, people were bringing up cash, but now you can't because the, the protest has disbanded. But that's been one of the big challenges here. So a, a lot of these people are, are still in debt or they've still gone through their savings just because they wanted to partake in this protest. Uh, let's see what we, uh, what we have here. Uh, Miguel, oh, th this is a Canadian question, but it's also a global question. So this one I think we can work with without losing the uh, Canuckophobes in our midst. Uh, Miguel writes, Andrew, is anyone in Europe, Russia, or Ukraine taking Canada seriously? Justin flew in for some great photo ops and had some nice socks on, but does anyone really care? Yes, Justin Trudeau, he's done like the Europe trip uh, in the last few days. He did a few hours in the UK where he was like mask on, mask off. Uh, alternating in every photo so which is just what you need to keep the COVID away you know the COVID comes sometimes but not other times and then he went to Germany and that was where that clip I played earlier came from of him preaching about diversity of opinion and all of that and then he went to Latvia and he's again doing the whole trip here I don't think anyone listens to him anymore if they ever did. I, I have right now in front of me, I, I'm going to try to zoom in because I, I'm going to try to give you, <laughs> so you don't have to look it up yourself, the perfect explanation. So Justin Trudeau did a, a bilateral press conference with Kamala Harris and his socks are, they're not the Ramadan socks that he had a couple of years ago, but they've got, I'm looking at the colors here. I think there are like nine or 10 there's like a baby blue, there's a dark blue, there's an orange, there's a yellow, there's a, a pink, there's another shade of yellow. So, I mean, like 10 or 12 colors on, on his socks. His He's wearing as his socks right now the old color bars you used to get when your uh, TV set wasn't working uh, because this is what he does. And if you look at pictures, this has been a running gag of his where he'll pose with foreign leaders and lift up and show a little bit of ankle which doesn't work at the Saudi Arabian uh, press conferences as well. Uh, show a little bit of ankle and show off the socks. And that's basically what he does. And there's a reason when I have covered Justin Trudeau in the past, I get more interest from foreign media outlets a lot of the time than Canadian media outlets in what he's doing around the world. Because, I mean, the Indian media thinks he's a joke and have ever since he did that trip where he brought along like three crates worth of costumes that he was changing uh, between press conferences, the UK media. Again, I mentioned uh, being on Colin Brazier's show on GB, but the UK media 
I think he's a laughing stock. And I think that when you look at Justin Trudeau, a guy who made one of the hallmark commitments of his first term in office, getting Canada a seat on the Security Council, and Canada lost, I believe, to Norway, if I if memory serves. Norway or Ireland, or it might have been Norway and Ireland that won that time around. But the whole point is Justin Trudeau thought that he was going to do this. And and this guy that wants to be the beacon of human rights was was going around doing photo ops with every tin pot dictator he could find in Africa because he wanted their votes for the UN Security Council seat and still didn't end up doing it. So I don't think anyone cares. I think he likes hobnobbing with Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel and all of these folks. But when he was at the G7 meeting in the UK uh, back, uh, I forget when it was, but it was the one uh, just last year or so in the midst of COVID. And he was there. There was a story in Bloomberg that I found fascinating by a, a reporter who I know that Canadian officials were going around trying to sell Justin Trudeau to other countries as the dean of the G7, because they said with with Angela Merkel's departure and from politics, Justin Trudeau was the longest serving of the G7 leaders. And it was hilarious. They kept uh, talking about how Justin Trudeau was trying to insert himself in all of these situations as the, nego the negotiator, and no countries <laughs> were taking him up on the offer. So I think that pretty much answers your question there, Miguel, which is that other leaders, at the very least, they like the photo op because maybe they think they can benefit a little bit from his popularity. But that is about it. Ali writes, hello, Andrew, what are the benefits of a World War III? You don't often hear questions about World War III uh, broken down to a cost-benefit analysis, so uh, hopefully I can give you something here. She says, other than the obvious monetary gain for the military-industrial complex and the usual war profiteers, would the globalist elites, the WEF crowd, see it as a mean to, means to an end for instituting their vision of a new world order slash great reset. Thanks for filling in for Mark. Well, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for your question. I don't see there as being any benefit to World War III. Certainly some people like to have this idea of rebuilding from the ashes of what once was, but as we know, most of the people that seek to destroy are not interested in building anything. The people that are all about dismantling the work of others, history, tradition, institutions, they don't actually know what they want in its place. And if they do, it's not good. What I find fascinating about this is that we've seen for the last two years a sh the sheer volume of people that have been trying to use whatever global calamity we're in the midst of as the justification to shoehorn in their agenda. And the climate alarmists in COVID are a great example of this. Back in, I think it was April of 2020, uh, for the first time, I saw the headline of how great lockdown is for the climate. And it was talking about, yeah, everyone's out of work. Yeah, everyone's staying home. Yeah, the whole world is shut down. But, oh my goodness, isn't it great that we don't have cars on the road? Because these people, that's what they wanted. That's their end game. And they don't care how many people have to be harmed for them to get that. They don't care how many people have to have their livelihoods destroyed for this one-track focus of theirs to come to fruition. And, and warmongers would be in the same boat. People that like war, people that are okay to champion some form of neocolonialism, or people who simply are, are profiteers on it. They don't care about the harm. They don't see war as a necessary evil of times. They see it as something that may solve problems, that may actually suit policy objectives. And I don't think the World Economic Forum is calling for World War III by any stretch, but I, I find it interesting that the World Economic Forum tries to link enemies with each other and pretend they're friends. It was last year, the uh, Davos uh, summit, which had been online because of, again, the Chinese COVID-19 virus, they gave the opening keynote speaking spot, spot to Xi Jinping. And Klaus Schwab was there talking about how great it is and how progressive China is and all the great work China's doing to join the liberal order. Vladimir Putin spoke at that same conference. This is January of 2020. Now, there's another Davos summit coming up in May of 2022. So in, I think, just about two months and a week or so. And I'm going to be there. I'm covering it for uh, another outlet, True North, where I, I do a podcast regularly. 
And I'm going to be there in Davos and covering it. And I have no doubt. I mean, maybe Vladimir Putin won't get the keynote invitation this year, but I'm sure that Xi Jinping will be invited. May I know he hasn't been out of China in quite some time. Maybe he'll Skype in and he'll be there. Same as Justin Trudeau, same as Bill Gates, same as whoever the Russians may send, same as Christian Freeland, the Canadian deputy prime minister, and John Kerry will be there. And they'll all be there as though they're all on the same team. And how can anyone not look at this and say, well, that may... Do we want them to all be on the same team? Because what are they doing for it? If, if Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping joining the Davos crowd and chatting it up with Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden, and that, if that didn't stop Vladimir Putin from defying the West by invading Ukraine, then what's the point of this? What's the point of this all? And you have to fill in the blanks there. Let's see what else we have here. And... Uh, <laughs> Oh, this one's, this is an interesting one. Mark Walbrown writes, uh, Hi, Mark. Well, I'm not Mark, but uh, hi to you, Mark. Uh, Notice the judge has proclaimed the name Jussie is synonymous with the word liar. So can we call him Jussie Sackey? Uh, so this is a reference, I presume, unless there's another Jussie in the news, to Jussie Smollett who is the hate crime hoaxer who went out in the middle of the night to get a meatball sub in the polar vortex and managed to be assaulted by the first black white supremacist in American history. And he did this, uh, you know, reported it to police, of course, then it ended up being a a whole hoax uh, of sorts. He has been sentenced to 150 days in jail and $120,000 of a fine for staging the hate crime. Now, he said he was uh, attacked for being black and gay. Now, I don't know how the assailants were to have known he was gay in the polar vortex at the middle of the night with the meatball sub. I have no idea. Uh, maybe there is uh, something about meatball subs. I, I don't know. But the, the reality is he he claimed this had happened and it was a whole thing that uh, just crumbled so very quickly. But he has been uh, maintaining his innocence until the very end. And he thinks now he's going to be killed in jail. So that's his latest thing. He said he couldn't be sentenced because he'd probably be killed in jail. Now, I don't know if that's because he's black or gay or if he's just come up with another excuse there. But the line that he gave to the judge if I did this, so I, I mean, again, he's still not admitting it, but he said, if I did this, if I did this, it means that I stuck my fist in the fears of black Americans in this country for over 400 years and the fears of the LGBT community. And he says, your honor, I didn't do this uh, and I'm not suicidal. So if anything happens to me, I didn't do it myself. And you all must know that. So he he's preempting himself against the whole Epstein thing. He's saying that if he dies, he didn't kill himself. He didn't uh, commit suicide. So I don't know if he is uh, blaming someone else. I don't know if he has access to the intel of some kind, but that's the uh, direction that uh, Jesse Smollett has gone. I hadn't heard of Jesse Smollett in quite a while, so... Uh, it's good to know he, he's still in the news. Uh, he won't be for the next 150 days, but we will see. Uh, let's see what else here. Drew writes, Hello, Andrew. After two plus years of COVID, the Stein Cruises seem distant memories. Ah, yes. Uh, quite fond memories of the Stein Cruises. Met a lot of the names that I'm seeing right here on them, either the uh, New England Cruise or the Alaskan Cruise we did. Another thing that COVID has made quite difficult or impossible in many ways, related to a topic I've previously mentioned to Mark, a former UN official just remarked that the US should pause its population growth to deal with the so-called climate emergency. Of course, the 100 million people to be added over the coming decades will... Oh, the screen refreshed on me, which is... Uh, abs- I've heard this happen to Mark, and I know exactly what he's talking about. Here we go. The 100 million people to be added over the coming decades will derive almost exclusively from immigration. Maybe the left will be prompted to explain how they square their zeal to reduce our carbon footprint with their demands to bring in constant streams of immigrants. I doubt it. In the meantime, the Chamber of Commerce is calling for more immigration to fill 11 million job openings, a temporary ploy that just kicks the can down the road, avoids addressing the root causes, including education systems from K through grad school that are failing to prepare too many of our own for productive lives in blue or white-collar jobs. Couple that with the jobs uh, that Americans uh, getting checks from the government won't do. Not sure if the same in Canada. Your thoughts? Well, there's a lot in there. Drew, and I thank you for the question. I I think the first thing I want to point out here is 
I was talking a moment ago about how all of the climate alarmists were so happy and giddy about what lockdown was doing that they didn't care about the harm of lockdown because it solved the so-called climate emergency. And the war in Ukraine is doing the same thing because now all the COVID alarmists are sad that no one cares about Ukraine. Or sorry, no one cares about COVID because they're all paying attention to Ukraine. So again, all the COVID alarmists now are saying, yeah, but, 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 you know, we, we need to keep the masks on and no, I know you want to go to Ukraine and fight, but travel restrictions, we need them and no, you shouldn't go. And, and okay, if you go fight for Ukraine, make sure you quarantine when you come back because we're not done with this. And then all the climate alarmists are saying, yeah, get in line, get in line. We we're, we're still two emergencies behind because no one cares about the climate alarmist stuff. When was the last time you heard from Greta Thunberg? And I'm serious. She, I mean, she's an adult now, so presumably we should have been hearing more from her. And we've heard less. I haven't, and I, I'm not complaining, by the way. I'm not at all complaining that Greta Thunberg has not uh, come across my computer screaming, how dare you at me in the last, what, two years? But since 2019, no one has really cared because everyone moves on. And it's always very inauthentic. I mean, I remember in the spring or summer of 2020 when the whole... George Floyd thing happened and everyone all of a sudden cared about Black Lives Matter and police brutality and then the next thing came around and everyone focused on that and then the next thing and, and that's exactly what's happening here. So it, when the, the point is, and, and where I bring that back to your question, Drew, is that everyone has an agenda and they're trying to shoehorn whatever the crisis of the day is into that agenda. So the climate emergency is great when you're trying to pursue the big green agenda and all of that. Uh, but when immigration is what you need, you have to just suspend the climate emergency and talk about all the needs for immigration. Same as the climate change people are uninterested in going to the developing world and talking about the global population challenges that are coming there. They just want to say, open the doors and families that have five, six, seven kids come on in. Well, at the same time, scolding the nice uh, Christian or Jewish couple around the corner who might want to have a large family. And they say, well, you're, you're killing the climate. I mean, look, that was, I, I forget if it was Harry or Megan or both who had the, I had the misfortune of, of sharing a country with for a couple of months time, but they said that, you know, for climate reasons, you should limit the number of children you have. But again, none of these people would dare say that to a Somali family. None of the people would dare say that to a family in Afghanistan or whatever. It only extends to the white suburban couples and uh, the inconsistencies I used to try to find an explanation for. And say, but but how do you justify that? And ultimately, I, I gave up on that a few years ago when, when the late Kathy Shadle, a dear friend of, of Mark's, of mine, and, and of uh, many of you, had said, uh, you know what, it basically is explained by the easy axiom, liberals, it's different when we do it. They don't need to be held to account. They don't need to be consistent. So I think that's the exact problem here. The Chamber of Commerce Brigade is saying, yeah, we just want the immigrants to come in and fill the jobs. The governments that are inconsistent on pretty much anything and everything benefit from that as well. To go back to Justin Trudeau for a moment, he made the 2015 election in which he won a, a majority, his first government in Canada, in large part about Syrian refugees. And many of these people are now citizens. They're now voters. And who are they going to vote for? They're going to vote for the country or they're going to vote for the government and the party who made a point of greeting them at the airport and saying, welcome home. And these things are, are built up over time. And, and in some cases, certainly in the U.S., Canada doesn't have the voter fraud issue that exists in the U.S. But in the U.S., you don't even need to wait till you become a citizen to, to get, practically speaking, your right to vote. Uh, Frank writes, welcome, Andrew. I don't get it. Biden doesn't want to provoke Putin with fighter MiGs from Poland when we're already provoking the Ukrainians with javelins because Putin is crazy and it will start World War III. Well, if he's crazy, he's not going to stop in Ukraine and we're just postponing the inevitable. I don't think he's crazy and I think he will back off if we give Ukraine what it wants. Trump would have. What say ye? Well, from me to ye, Frank... I don't like the oversimplification that we tend to see from a lot of people about, I mean, about anything, 
but certainly about Putin and about Russia-Ukraine, people that were epidemiological experts yesterday for the last two years because they, you know, believe that everyone should remain masked and locked down. All of a sudden, Russia invades Ukraine and then they become global geopolitics experts the next day. And, you know, they have to change their Twitter bio. But this is basically it, is that, you know, yesterday's PhD in epidemiology is today's a PhD in international relations and is tomorrow's in, you know, whatever the crisis of April 2022 is. But there's an oversimplification because uh, every now and then you'll get a Marco Rubio has done a bit of this. Well, you know, if you knew what we knew, you'd know that Putin is not well and a few screws are loose and something's not right. And I don't hold U.S. intelligence such as it is in that high esteem. So maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's not. But what I do think is that you can't oversimplify this into, you know, oh, Putin's got a few screws loose, which is what a lot of people tend to do. And similarly, I don't think you can simplify it into that old, oh, well, he just has these grandiose ambitions of restoring the Russian Empire and being the new czar, and he has the uh, one of the bust of one of the czars in his office and all of that. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I certainly think there's a, a Russian imperialism aspect to what Putin is doing here. But it's everyone trying to just neatly fit it into a box that I that I don't buy. But but I agree. I mean, if the whole point is that he's crazy and erratic, then you don't know what he's going to do. I mean, well, that's the kind of thing he could just invade Belarus or he could invade Moldova or he could just steamroll right ahead and go into Poland or somewhere else. There, there is a calculated aspect of this. And I think generally speaking, Putin knew and still knows that invading Ukraine is probably the safest possible option, given the lackluster response from a lot of Western countries. And more importantly, it's the one that makes the most sense if you are Putin. And, and the whole point of being dismissive of him is that you tend to not pay attention to the nuances that are very important in a situation like this. I've got, you know, very little time for the invasion and for Putin and all of that. I don't think that needs to be said, but everyone now, if you say something even like marginally critical of the mainstream media narrative, you become a, a Russian asset. So I'm not to my knowledge, a, a Russian asset. I'm very pro Ukraine. I'm very anti-invasion, but, but trying to understand it and think about, about it strategically should be something that we welcome. It should be something that we do and, and want to do because that's the way you could try to find an alternative, try to find a workaround, try to end it. And every world leader, speaking of all the G7 leaders, they're all trying to, you know, have a hand in solving this with no success. I, I think I saw, and I don't know if it's gone up by now, but two days ago, I saw a report that Emmanuel Macron has spoken 11 times to Vladimir Putin. And if you look, I, I'm looking right now at the map that a BBC updated last night at, I think, 10 p.m. or so. The map of where Russia is, and it has continued to expand westward and southward in some cases, but it's continued to expand into Ukrainian territory as Emmanuel Macron has had 11 conversations with Vladimir Putin. Now, admittedly, one of those, I don't think they hurt each other because that was when they had uh, basically the entire continent of Europe between them on that one table. But but of all the other ones, of all the other ones, they've been there, they, they've had these dialogues and the Germans have talked to Putin and the Iranians have talked to the Russians and the Chinese have talked to the Russians and now Israel's talking to the Russians and all of this is not doing anything. So again, maybe it's that Putin is unshakable in his resolve. Maybe it's that no one has tried uh, something like, oh, you know, maybe you, you might like this or something. But the whole point of this is that anytime someone tries to simplify this into this neat little narrative and try to reduce this down to black and white and try to whitewash Ukraine and at the same time demonize the Russians, you're not actually getting anywhere. And this is why I think so much of the discourse around this has just been absolutely infuriating. Because you've got people that don't know. I don't pretend to be an expert in, in Russia, Ukraine. I must admit that this is just not a part of the world that I know as well as other parts of the world, which I thought might be embroiled in conflict more sooner than this one. But I can at least admit that, unlike a lot of the talking heads who seem to be uh, dominating <laughs> much of the oxygen here. And on that note, I will. this question is interesting. AJ writes, what do you make of the Israeli prime minister attempting to broker peace between Ukraine and Russia, or at least a ceasefire? It seems so odd with me. The Israel one is interesting, and, and I've a lot of people that I've talked to that have ties to Israel are still 
they're very skeptical of Naftali Bennett. They don't quite know whether they trust him or not, whether they like him. I mean, Bibi had a lot of popularity, certainly among a lot of the pro-Israel folks in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere in the West. Uh, Naftali Bennett, I, I think a lot of people are still very leery of him. And again, I, I go back to what I mentioned a moment ago about all of the other leaders that have tried. And, and you have to say, when anyone goes in there, what are they going to provide that's different? What are they going to do that's different? Because, I mean, the Jerusalem Post, I, I read just before I came on air here, and Bennett uh, has advised Zelensky to just surrender to Russia, and Zelensky had said no. So uh, that that is not really contributing to all that much. I mean, maybe it's just Israel saying that, well, yes, you know, we'll we'll take Russia's side in a, in a marginal way here. But again, a lot for Israel, Israel owes nothing to most of the world. And this is why I find Israel fascinating, because anyone who is clutching their pearls because Neftali Bennett has gone the other direction from most of the G7 and the G20 in this, I mean, I would say, look at how you've treated Israel. And that's not about whether it's right or wrong what they're doing. I'm just saying that Israel owes the world absolutely nothing, given how the world continues to thumb its nose at Israel. And again, I mean, politics makes for strange bedfellows. Israel's threats are a lot less theoretical than they are for people like Boris Johnson and Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron. Israel's threats are very real. Syria, Iran, these are very real threats to Israel that are a lot more practical than the airy-fairy virtue-signaling foreign policy that tends to get passed off elsewhere. So the reason I, I bring that up is to say that I don't fault Israel for looking at Syria and the relationship it has with Russia because of Syria and basically saying, okay, there's, there's a weird, there's a little bit of a weird dynamic here that is, I think, a, a nuance that's detached from how a lot of other people are engaging with this. Scott writes, uh, let's see here, Beyond, uh, besides Mark's outstanding programs, I listened to Victor Davis Hansen's podcast. He's brought an interesting issue in regards to the Russia-Ukraine war. Where are the war correspondents? During the invasion of Iraq, I think every unit had their own war correspondent. There's so much propaganda, misinformation coming out from every side, but there does not seem to be many reports from correspondents on the ground in Ukraine. Is this a result of corporate media and the TikTok generation? Why be on the ground in danger when you can just report from your basement with complete moral certitude? <laughs> so, I, Scott, thank you so much for asking this. Because you've given me an excuse to bring up this story that I read this morning. And I think it was the Washington Post. The White House, yeah, I have the story here. The White House has launched a briefing program to give people some information about its uh, response to the war. And the White House has brought in 30 TikTok stars to a Zoom call to receive key information. I'm quoting here from the article about the war unfolding in Ukraine. Uh, Jen Psaki said the influencers were briefed about the United States' strategic goals in the region and answered questions on distributing aid to Ukrainians working with NATO and how the United States would react to a Russian use of nuclear weapons. Now, I am not on TikTok. So the influencers are the people that have millions of viewers on TikTok and the ones that are, are famous uh, without actually doing anything in their lives. And I'm a capitalist. Good on them if they can make it work. But the, the whole point of these TikTok influencers is that they're there because they're generally speaking offering makeup tips or stupid dance moves or memes of some kind. So if the TikTok account that you go to to watch your covers of Miley Cyrus songs all of a sudden starts talking to you about, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, response to nuclear weapons being deployed by Russia... That influencer may have been inside Jen Psaki's briefing, so you have to be have to be on guard. If you start getting geopolitics from your TikToks, then it likely means that Jen Psaki got to them. So uh, that that's exactly the point here. They they're done with war correspondence because now it's just as easy to get out your wartime propaganda by talking to the TikTok influencers. And this is I mean I didn't think Voice of America could get worse than it is. But Voice of America has now been in Joe Biden's uh, White House replaced by TikTok influencers on a State Department Zoom call. So 
take from that what you will. But I, I don't have high hopes if that's the the messaging. Now, I don't. I, again, I don't know if Vladimir Putin has his own uh, TikTok counterinsurgency, so maybe the Russian TikToks will come, and maybe this whole war can just be a proxy war done by TikTok influencers. Who knows? There's one Canadian... I don't know if he's on TikTok or Twitter, uh, but he's an influencer of some kind who's a comedian that's decided to go overseas to fight with Ukraine. And I don't know if, and not to fight with Ukraine, but alongside Ukraine. That's a an important wording choice on my part. But uh, he's been there. Now, I haven't been seeing his updates, so I don't know if anything has happened to him. But again, he also might not have been on Jen Psaki's briefing. So who knows? Joseph writes, hello, Mark. Not Mark, but thank you anyway. Uh, you have said before that you think about starting a pre-COVID political movement or party like Farage's Brexit party. I'd like to suggest that since we have lost the war on terror anyway, we might as well act like it didn't happen and restore our freedom of movement to eliminate all the governments spying on their people and have a 9-10 party. Or maybe let's just go back to the build, the beginning of the 20th century and eliminate the federal income tax, direct election of senators, and restore a sound monetary system. Yeah, I could be for a pre-tyranny party. What say you? How far do we need to roll the clock back? So I like that a lot, Joseph, but you've got to be very careful because uh, you don't want that to become the trend and then someone decides they want to give you the, I don't know, like the 1775 party. Uh, so you have to make sure that you cap how far back you're going to go. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I mean, because that, that's the whole point. Everyone now talks about the need to go back to January 2020 or the fall of 2019 or whatever. And I, I don't mind that. I was in Florida in January 2020. And had I known how everything was going to end up uh, being, I would have probably just stayed there instead of coming back home to to Canada. But it is interesting because when you do look at some of these upstart political parties, a lot of them revolve around a single issue. Like the Brexit Party is a great example of that. And the Brexit Party had a lot of success. It was a single issue party based around a single and important idea. The People's Party of Canada, which if you've seen Mad Max, Maxime Bernier on Mark's show, you'll know is a party that's very freedom oriented. It's got a, a broader array of policies than the Brexit Party, but it has, it's also failed to gain traction in Canada in large part because you still have a, a political system in, in, in our country that's resistant to change. You contrast that with some of the regional parties you see in Canada that do have a very narrow focus. There's a, a party right now that is on uh, on track in the West, in Alberta, to do, probably not to win, but to do some damage at the polls. And their focus is Western independence. They want Alberta to go at it alone, leave Canada, and run its own thing. They're basically the Alberta analog of what the uh, Parti Québécois has tried to do for years, not with much success. But they've certainly moved the needle and asserted a presence in Quebec. And the separatist parties in Canada are doing better than the freedom-oriented parties. Because a lot of people are now at the point that you can't fix it. You can't, whatever the it is. You can't fix the government crackdown on civil liberties. You can't fix the government capitulation to COVID alarmism. You can't fix high taxes. You can't fix this. And, and for a lot of people, the, the throw-in-the-towel party is more alluring than a party that is trying to go back to the basics. Now, does going, to the back, does, does going back to the basics mean going back in time? That I don't know. But I do think it is interesting when you look at upstart parties, and obviously the, the U.S. is a, a very different animal here because you just have a, a two-party system and, and you have factions and sects within those parties. But you don't see successful upstarts or third-party candidates, certainly not now. But in Europe, you, you see them all over. And in Canada, we have basically five parties represented in Parliament right now. Is it? Wait a minute, it might actually be six. We've got the Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDP, the Green, and the uh, Bloc Québécois. No, it is five. And then the People's Party, which had a relatively good showing, but didn't win any seats just because it was a decentralized support. But I, I do think that parties with a very narrow mandate that are trying to tackle a very simple and easily understood issue tend to do better than parties that are, are really trying to push forward some form of ideological purity. What else do we have here? Oh, let's see. Fran writes, Hi, Andrew. Good to see you survived the pepper spray attacks. Are all the provinces in Canada now open to foreigners to visit without the fear of being asked for a proof of vaccine? And are mask mandates over throughout Canada? I'm going a little stir-crazy here in the U.S. 
People are still wearing masks while out riding bikes and in the open fresh air, even though the mandates have lifted. And do you have plans to make any more documentaries in the near future? Oh, well, thank you. I, I'm not good at plugging myself normally, but uh, what Fran is asking about there is a documentary I did last year about firearms in Canada. Uh, we don't have the Second Amendment. Our gun ownership is very limited and very dependent on the whims of government, which can change on a daily basis. So I did a, a documentary called Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. And that documentary I did did phenomenally well. I, I was very grateful for all of the support. One of the, the points, if I may, Fran, and I know it wasn't your question, but I'll, I'll bring it up here. In May of 20, uh, 2020, Justin Trudeau signed, basically, it's the Canadian version of an executive order, an order in council prohibiting about 1,500 types of otherwise lawful firearms from being owned, used, or sold in Canada. And one of them was the AR-15 uh, the and all of the AR-15 variants. And the, the impetus behind this was that there had been a, a horrific shooting spree in Nova Scotia by this deranged lunatic who we learned later had illegally owned guns. So guns that wouldn't have been affected by the prohibition because he didn't go through the proper channels to have them. Uh, but the government banned this and they said, we're going to give a two-year amnesty. And at the end of the two years you have to have handed it back to the government basically uh, so that we can buy it back. Now, it's not a buyback because the government never owned it in the first place, but they said you have two years to uh, sell it to the government or it's going to be illegal. Now, that amnesty... Uh, affected businesses in a huge way. I, I interviewed a lot of business owners who were sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory that's illegal for them to sell. They can't send it back to the distributor and the buyback that the government's promised uh, still doesn't exist. And we're now uh, 22 months later. And I own a couple of the guns that were on that prohibited list. And technically I'm going to be a criminal as of May 1st, 2020 because the government hasn't even given me the opportunity to buy back this, uh, these guns, and it's illegal to do anything else. So I, I'm following that very closely. I don't know if I'll do another documentary on it, but certainly I will follow that. Uh, but as to the questions about the mask mandates and proof of vaccination, no, if you are a tourist who wants to visit Canada, you have to be vaccinated to get in the country. Once you're in, it depends where you go. Alberta and Saskatchewan have lifted their vaccine passports and their masks. Uh, we still have masks in Ontario where I am for another 10 days. And even then, the government has said that they encourage people to keep them on in a voluntary basis. So I actually don't mind if you see people down uh, wherever you are in the, the free U.S. wearing masks when they're out riding their bikes. I find that far preferable to let the lunatics live the way they want to live while letting the sane people go about their lives as normal. And that's true of the so-called vaccine passports as well. I'm fine if, you know, Moe's Deli wants to require you to be vaccinated if you want to go in there and get a Reuben. I'm not okay with the government forcing restaurants to because I can choose, uh, you know what, I don't want to play that game. I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to engage in that. But no one had any choice when government was imposing this one-size-fits-all solution. Chris from Michigan, if this is the Chris I'm thinking of, I met him on the Mark Stein Cruises, so good to hear from you, Chris. Given the misinformation we've been fed for decades from the media on issues like the Russia hoax, COVID origins, public health pronouncements, climate, energy policy, squeaky clean elections, one might conclude that the movie Men in Black was right concerning tabloids such as the National Enquirer being the best investigative outlets on the planet. If you haven't been a crazed conspiracy theorist in recent times, you've totally let reality pass you by. The Babylon Bee has a better track record than the New York Times. And they're not even trying to get things right. Is there any way for the mainstream media to develop some brains and guts to start getting some, at least some things right? Or do we need to do what Corporal Hicks recommends in Aliens? Nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Yeah, I mean, that may be one. That's like for the throw in the towel people I was talking about a few moments ago, they might be welcoming nuclear war with Russia because then it's like the big mulligan for the universe of just, all right, just, just, just come on, nuke us all and, and we can restart from scratch later on in the future. But I, I do think it's interesting. The National Enquirer, because I, I grew up with the same perception of, oh, it's just this, you know, big hoax uh, newspaper. And when you dig into the National Enquirer's record, you forget 
for me anyway, I just did this <laughs> a moment ago uh, as I was talking uh, and you look, forget how many things they've been right about. I mean, the John Edwards scandal, that was one they broke. I think there was a big story about Michael Jackson. They broke as well. There have been a number of stories where the National Enquirer gets it right and mainstream media completely ignore it until it, it's unavoidable, which is the same thing we see happening from a lot of bloggers and podcasters and independent and alternative media now that are reporting on all these things that the mainstream media just ignores and avoids until they can't anymore. And then they still never quite apologize for calling everyone a conspiracy theorist. The example that I would bring that's the most poignant of this is the, well, the COVID, the COVID origins. I mean, in, in Canada, the health minister, former health minister, Patty Haidu, who was uh, working for Justin Trudeau, of course, had accused a reporter who asked, a mainstream media reporter, no less, he had, she had accused him of feeding conspiracy theories when he asked, uh, not even about if China had unleashed COVID, but if China's numbers could be trusted, if the fatality numbers that were coming out of China could be trusted. And she said, questions like that are feeding conspiracy theories. And that was the Canadian government's approach. Uh, th that same health minister said border closures are racist. And then a few days later, her government closed all the borders. This is back in, in March of 2020. And no apology, no formal denunciation of that. Masks were a bad thing. Then they were a good thing. So at the, the breakneck speed at which the public health apparatus is changing its mind would presumably subject them to the accusations of being conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists and liars and all of that. But it doesn't seem to work that way. They don't have to be held to account in the same way. And, and interestingly enough, I, I, I go back to how everyone's responding to the Ukraine biolab story as well. And I'll read the headline, if I can pull it up here, from foreign, was it foreign policy or foreign affairs? I think it was from foreign policy. Basically saying, this is the problem. I have way too many tabs open. And then when I want to find something, I can't actually find it. But, oh, here it is. A Russian biolab conspiracy theory. Connected to QAnon. So that was the, uh, the the one, the subline here. False claims of U.S. biowarfare labs in Ukraine grip QAnon. So the idea of U.S.-backed biolabs in Ukraine, which is not a conspiracy now, which has been admitted by the U.S. government, is to a foreign policy magazine, not just wrong, not just a conspiracy theory, but a QAnon conspiracy theory. So basically drawing a line from the biolab uh, talk to January 6th and all of the uh, crazy conspiracy theories, many of which have, have ended up being true. QAnon is a bit of a nutso thing, but the things that are lumped into that category are oftentimes very legitimate criticisms that just happen to diverge or run contrary to the mainstream media narrative or the state narrative. And then there's an interesting uh, development on this, which is that Reuters had <laughs> reported this morning that the World Health Organization has advised Ukraine to destroy pathogens in health labs to prevent disease spread. So WHO has said they don't want anyone to have an accidental or deliberate release of pathogens. So on Thursday, they've said that the Ukrainians have to go in there and start destroying everything they're working on. Uh, and again, for the U.S., because the U.S. defense on this, I, I think it was Avril Haines, the Defense Department spokesperson, had responded and said, oh, I, I mean, we were just helping with biosafety. So uh, the U.S. position is that they're, you know, basically just uh, testing out, you know, household chemicals and window cleaners and nothing of substance. And the U.S. is in there on, oh, here's what you do if you maybe accidentally spill a vial or something. But if it's nothing, it's just you know, just a little thing and it's been going on for a while. And, and all of it is basically to say, don't look over here. All of it is to say, don't look at this. And if you do look at it, then they just accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist. And that's the reality of it here. Uh, Brian from Minneapolis writes, word is that Putin miscalculated by invading Iran. Or not Iran, Ukraine. No, yeah. if you're listening to this, you haven't missed something. That that was entirely, I was, do, I was doing the Joe Biden thing when he talked about all the Iranians that were being affected by uh, Putin's war. Uh, maybe I need to go see my doctor and make sure I don't have whatever uh, Joe Biden had during the State of the Union. Uh, word is that Putin miscalculated by invading Ukraine if that's true and the war isn't going the way he thought, what are the chances that Ukraine or parts of it are all he's going to get and no more? There was a, another question I saw 
that I I can't find right now, but I, it was similar to that. I remember the question because I wanted to get to it near the end anyway, which was whether Putin's going for scorched earth. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the question of whether Putin is actually deranged or crazy or whether this is some, you know, spiritual crusade of some kind and, and not strategic. And all of these are, are fair enough questions that people can ask. But certainly I think he thought it was going to be over and done with in a week. I mean, the reality is when you hear all of the reports about the Ukrainians and you can see videos and even if you have to have a healthy dose of skepticism about this, when you look at TikToks, to go back to TikTok, of these Ukrainians just getting in uh, Russian tanks that have been abandoned and driving them away, tractors hooking them up and pulling them away. There was one tweet from Ukraine's defense ministry today offering people, I can't remember the amount, I think it was like $100,000 or something, US, if they are a Russian pilot and they surrender their aircraft and defect. They'll get uh, whatever the amount was. I don't want to get it wrong, but it was a significant sum. So they'll get a six-figure sum from the Ukrainian treasury. If you're a Russian pilot and you just fly into Ukraine and decide, I don't know, decide to land in Kiev or something, which, I mean, oddly enough, you must have to warn them if you're about to do it and they don't just think it's uh, someone else that Vladimir Putin has sent to fly in there. But and that's what they're doing. And again, I, I you, you never know through the fog of war how much of this is bluster, how much is true. I'm certain if it does happen, there's going to be a significant story about it and Ukraine's going to want to pump it up. But it's not going as well as Russia expected it would. Which is why, if you look, Russia, which has a very large military, it's invested a fair bit in its military, today they're starting to do what Ukraine's doing, which is open the door to foreign fighters. Now, Russia wants to take support from people in the Middle East. Ukraine is trying to get fighters from absolutely anywhere. The, if I wanted to, I could call up the uh, Ukrainian embassy in Ottawa and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to go to Ukraine, and apparently they'll help facilitate that in, in some way. But now Putin is trying to tap the world for his own version. So again, I mean, if this becomes just the war of the TikTok influence all descending on Ukraine and Russia and fighting both sides of it out, I mean, it may be by the end of it that the Russians and the Ukrainians aren't even the ones fighting this war. But if you look at, to go back to the Trump point that another questioner made, if, if you look at the numbers of how much is being contributed to defense spending by NATO countries, this is exactly what Donald Trump was warning about, that countries are not pulling their weight, and that eventually there's going to be a situation where people are going to be talking about NATO, and other countries are going to be drastically ramping up. The UK, which does spend uh, well above, well, not well above, but marginally above its 2% NATO target, uh, they've said that they now have to put in a whole bunch more defense spending. You've got the US, which has just approved, I think, like a $14 billion package for Ukraine and, and some such. But I, I'm looking at the list right now from 2021. Of all the countries that have agreed they're going to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, France is just over that, 2.01. Romania is 2.02. But more countries are below it. From Norway, which is at 1.85%, to Montenegro, 1.74%, Canada, which is at 1.39%, all the way down to Luxembourg at 0.57%. But all of these countries that have said they want to be a part of this alliance, and they aren't even paying their fair share. And now that everyone's looking at all of these defensive operations that need to be uh, dealt with, Estonia, uh, the I mean, the Baltic states are, are particularly on the front lines of this. And all of these things that basically amount to vindication for what Donald Trump was chastised for reminding the world and, and accused of being undiplomatic on, even though it was entirely true. Uh, we, we have time for just one more question as we head on our way out here. And I'm sorry I can't get to all of them, but I do appreciate very much all of you asking. And this one's from Melissa who writes, Hi, Andrew, how did you get mixed up with Mark? Do all Canadians know each other? So the long and short of it is that all Canadians don't, in fact, know each other. But oftentimes when someone says, do you know so-and-so, the answer is yes. So I realize that I kind of feed the 
conspiracy theory. Speaking of conspiracy theories there. Um, but that's actually, uh, especially in, in media and in politics. If someone would be like, oh, you must know so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, so Mark and I, we go way, way, way back to 2010. And it actually involves Kathy Shadle, who I miss dearly and mentioned earlier in the show. I was a, a campus conservative at the time. And you know, the, the, the scrappy, uh, fearless campus conservative types. And I was so tired of all of the, though the word woke didn't really exist at the time, but I was tired of just the, the narrative on campuses as a, as an undergraduate student. So I decided it would be really fun if my friends and I got together and we arranged for Ann Coulter to come speak on campus. She was uh, quite a big deal doing a lot of campus speaking, but never in Canada. And in Canada, Ann was just absolutely reviled at the time. And probably still is, but but especially then, because it was in the heyday. She had had a lot of books, which had been making a big splash at the time. Uh, so we we arranged it. I, I had been involved in, in conservative uh, blogging in the U.S. Uh, back, when, <laughs> back when it was fun to be on the Internet. And I had a couple of contacts there. So we, we did it and we ended up uh, working with a, another group, the International Free Press Society, and made it a, a national speaking tour. And, and if you uh, are not familiar with it, what ended up happening was that at one school, they basically had to cancel it because they said they could not protect Anne's safety if she were to go on stage. And that was the University of Ottawa. And then we went to the University of Calgary and they said, hey, this looks like a popular event. We should give you a bigger room. So we had three, well, three events. One was canceled. And at the end of it, this was in March of 2010. We were so happy and so excited. We're like, who else can we bring that's really just going to get under people's skin, but also make a tremendous point? And, and Kathy Shadle had been very involved in the Canadian Human Rights Commissions. And she had come across and uh, become quite close to Mark Stein and said, I can connect you with Mark and his team. And I was a huge Mark Stein fan. I said, yeah, yeah, like we could get Mark Stein. And she said, no, 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 let, let me see. And and we ended up inviting him to speak in, in my city of London, Ontario. And it was supposed to be just a talk. He was going to come in. He was going to chat. He was going to sign some books. It was great. And <laughs> but, but beforehand, the city of London said that it would not allow us to use the city of London-owned venue because they had consulted with leaders in the Muslim community and said that the event couldn't go on because it would be too offensive. Uh, so what Mark ended up doing was uh, really leaned into it. And he said, okay, we're going to have a huge party now uh, because he learned that the city-owned venue that thought Mark Stein was too controversial uh, to the local Muslim community didn't think the same about Sexapalooza, which had been on a couple of months. So he came and did Steinapalooza. And that was that was it. The rest, as they say, is history. I worked with Mark on a couple of events, and, and I've been a, a fan, and I would like to say a friend ever since. I've, I've got a lot of time for Mark, and I'm so grateful that I get the chance to even sit here and share in a part of, of what he's created. So I'm getting a little sentimental now, but uh, thank you very much for that question, Melissa. With that, because it is a Canadian content edition of the Clubland Q&A, I thought I would play us out, as they say, with Earl Bostick's Canadian Sunset. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all.
Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.